Thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. Before we start, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and more. My name is Sarah Tabbitt, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at the University of California, San Francisco, Benioff Children's Hospital, and I have the opportunity today to talk to Dr. Uh, David Wessel. David, how are you doing today? I'm good, Sarah, and thank you for letting me join you today on this podcast. Um, I'm sure that everyone listening knows who David is, but um, I was just going to ask you, David, if you could go a little bit through your training and your, uh, we'll start with your training, which got you into cardiac ICU. Well, I began uh, with an interest actually in uh, physics as a high school student. I studied physics as an undergraduate at uh, the College of William and Mary, and then uh, changed to focus a little bit and had an opportunity to go to Oxford and uh, switched to physiology there, where I really gained my interest both in medicine, but also in pediatrics. I finished at Oxford, came back to Yale, spent seven years at Yale, both in medical school and early part of my training. And then I continued my training because I had come to really believe that what I wanted to do was take care of critically ill children who had heart disease. And at the time, there wasn't really boards in critical care in pediatrics, for example. Uh, So there were different opportunities for me to to try to develop the skill set, either through anesthesia or or through cardiology, which was uh, very much present in pediatric intensive care areas at the time. So I ended up uh, hearing advice from lots of different people and uh, assimilating that advice and just deciding to do everything. So I trained in pediatrics, I trained in anesthesiology, where I got a lot of great experience with adults and with critical care. Uh, Then I trained in pediatric cardiology, and I also trained uh, then in, uh, I think I mentioned pediatric critical care had become a board uh, certified uh, entity by about 1987. So anesthesiology, pediatrics, cardiology, and critical care. And that enabled me to uh, have the cards, if you will, at the time at Boston Children's Hospital to specialize in pediatric cardiac intensive care in the early 1980s. And so when you started at Boston Children's, was there a cardiac intensive care unit? Well, there was a specialty area that uh, Roberta Williams and and Peter Lang uh, and others had really invested in, and I think Uh, After I finished my training uh, and could provide a little bit of link between the existing and still relatively new pediatric critical care unit there that Bob Crone had uh, just developed uh, and the cardiology and especially the cardiac surgery uh, programs that were very strong in Boston led by Dr. Natus and then Dr. Castaneda, especially in cardiac surgery, it just gave me the right language to speak to Uh, the specialist in those fields and to have the relationship that could be built up. For example, my relationship with Dr. Castaneda really began in the operating room as a cardiac anesthesiologist across that ether screen, if you will. So he began to develop some trust in me as a clinician, and that trust uh, spilled more naturally over to trust in the intensive care unit during the postoperative period. 
So for a while you did both cardiac anesthesia and as we would think of it, cardiac ICU. I did, and at the same time, for the first few years of my career, I was an attending in the pediatric intensive care unit as well. And in those days, uh, there weren't too many of us as specialists in those areas, so I found myself uh, early on in my career struggling with the what we refer to as work-life balance between trying to be full-time pediatric intensivist, full-time cardiac intensivist, and a full-time cardiac anesthesiologist. So there were some tough on-call years in the early days. And how do you feel your uh, training in anesthesia helped you with the cardiac ICU? I think the anesthesia training is, it was very important uh, for me in terms of develop, developing my airway management skills. Uh, really having uh, two or three years of intense uh, training regarding airway management, uh, anesthetics, and then the drug pharmacology uh, and use of drugs, uh, that's very much part of the, the central core of uh, anesthesia training. So that and my awareness of what happened in the operating room and the relationships that you could build with the surgeons by virtue of that common experience in the operating room, I think really facilitated uh, the, both the organizational structure and the makeup of people and relationships in the cardiac ICU. So you spent many years as director of the cardiac ICU and hired many and trained many cardiac intensivists. What do you think in the current era is uh, the best uh, training pathway for someone who wants to go into cardiac intensive care? Well, I've always felt that the specialty can be served well by people of different disciplines. Uh, I think it's a little impractical now for me to advise people that they should have full training in anesthesia and in pediatrics and critical care and cardiology. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that's either particularly efficient and I don't think it's, it's practical anymore. Um, however, I, I, I do think that there are aspects of those disciplines that really have to be incorporated into a training program. Uh, so I, I, I would like to see the field continue to be supplied, if you will, by people that have some diversity in their background, diversity in terms of professional training. So some will come from a critical care background and then will need to have that extra cardiology experience. Others will come from a cardiology background, but then need to develop the pediatric critical care skill sets. And in particular, I would argue the airway management skill sets that's so necessary. So one can do that by training in, in pediatrics and then in uh, either critical care or cardiology and then switching to the other. So these uh, five-year uh, fellowship training programs that combine critical care and cardiology are a good way to do that. But I think there's still opportunities to take other people. Maybe they're from anesthesia, anesthesiology and they're training in cardiac anesthesia and they spend additional time in the cardiac ICU in that training program. So I think they can come from different tracks. Even, you know, there, there have been some terrific surgeons who've spent a lot of time doing uh, cardiac surgery and elect to spend an additional specialized year really learning the skill set and knowledge base that's necessary to be an outstanding cardiac intensivist. So I, I still think there can be multiple uh, pathways that get you to that specialized year, but you've, you've really got to spend time in a unit, I think, in order to be fully qualified, in a unit that uh, has high complexity of cases that take care of children before and after cardiac uh, surgery and uh, with other uh, congenital and acquired heart diseases. 
uh, where you really focus on that discipline, uh, no matter what your background was prior to that time. Mm -hmm. um, so you've obviously trained uh, many cardiac intensivists. Do you have any um, advice to somebody who has done their training as maybe four, five, six, how many years uh, into clinical practice and is entertaining taking a director position at another institution? Specifically, how far into your career before you should maybe consider that? And what are some of the considerations uh, moving to a new institution? Well, I think you've got to make sure that you've got your skill set and, and knowledge base down well and have confidence in your own uh, skills at the bedside before you contemplate a director position. Uh, we did have a lot of experience with giving advice to folks in the early days because there weren't pediatric cardiac intensive care units and there was a lot of opposition to developing uh, them. And uh, so as they began to be developed, there were folks, the hospitals, big systems, looking for those special people that could come and be the director. Uh, so uh, we often had folks that had trained a relatively short time and there were the offers out there to be directors. So my counsel to them at the time was uh, to make sure that they were satisfied with their, uh, their skill set, what their knowledge was, that they'd had some experience uh, at the time. Uh, they would uh, typically stay on faculty with me after their training for two or three years or so. But probably one of the most important bits of advice I, I used to tell people, and I think there's still some merit to it, Sarah, is uh, I would say when you go to a job as a director in a cardiac intensive care unit, in your first year, you should keep your head down and your mouth shut. You should convince those that you're working with that you are the best doctor at the bedside that they've ever seen because that card in your pocket that says you are a very good doctor, a very good clinician, you're the go-to person that your surgeons and other cardiologists are gonna to wanna to come to when they have a particular difficult problem or there's a patient that's not doing well. I think that card will last you a professional lifetime and so you convince people the first year that you're just simply a very good doctor. And then with that card in hand, you can more easily accomplish perhaps some of the institutional organizational changes that need to uh, occur or some of the other administrative changes that you think will, will get the unit to, to where you want as the new director. So uh, the uh, clinical expertise, I think, is still a very important card. Now, I think there are other folks who've become uh, good leaders and have made use of additional degrees and training. Some people get uh, MBAs, uh, some people do masters in public health, so they have skills in uh, different kinds of uh, research or epidemiology. So I think there are some additional skill sets from an educational point of view that one can acquire. Uh, and there are other skill sets that simply one can learn on the job if you're disciplined about it and really research the field read a lot about those issues and problems and apply them to your situation. Uh, so along those lines, um, to my recollection, you're the most successful cardiac intensivist who's moved into administration. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that transition and whether you feel that moving into administration may have helped this so-called burnout that's very common in our field? Well, I think, uh, let's, uh, let me think. I. The, the physician wellness is a real, uh, is an important issue right now. And as I look back on my career, uh, I 
I think I, I benefited from expanding my duties to include other uh, administrative aspects of uh, care of the patient and organization of, of institutions. So I, uh, I had a great experience, was in Boston, my total career there is probably 25 years or more. Uh, I moved to Washington, D.C., and uh, I think one of the things people look at is uh, if you want to broaden your platform and there's more that you want to do for the broader field, is there an opportunity at the institution where you are or can that opportunity be developed in another institution? So I think there's a lot of local influence that guides people's career decision making. And uh, for me, there was a great opportunity in Washington, D.C. at Children's National and uh, I learned a lot on the job there. I still have my heart and soul in the cardiac ICU, but uh, I have now uh, about 37 different divisions uh, that I supervise as the chief medical officer and hospital's executive vice president, but I'm finding myself learning a lot. And you know, when you're learning a lot, that's uh, invigorating and exciting. So now I'm, uh, I'm talking to people from Wall Street about our bond ratings. I meet with the reinsurance people at Lloyd's of London to talk about insurance. And uh, I have a lot of uh, time that needs to be spent on the financials of the institution. Uh, but at the same time, I can't lose my connection to the clinical care and the quality and safety and outcomes, and that's still my main responsibility in our, in our hospital is, is looking at quality, safety, and outcomes. So I think uh, by reading and by doing a lot of on-the-job training, uh, one can advance your career and look for ways in which you can uh, continue to be a lifelong learner. Uh, and we have some other great examples in the field of people who continue to get uh, degrees and reinvent themselves, so to speak. I, I can't help but think of Anthony Chang, who I was reminded of uh, Anthony's uh, great interest in, in diverse fields, whether it's law or medicine or business or innovation. Uh, he's gone beyond medicine and, and been able to reinvent himself and to make progress in the field. So I think reinventing oneself uh, periodically, especially if you think you've accomplished what you set out to do at the beginning of that period of your life in that institution where you are, then uh, there's opportunity to think about moving to another institution. Um, let me shift gears a second. I think there's a paper you were senior author on some time back about the fact that only a small number of medications that we use in the ICU are actually FDA approved for uh, pediatrics. Can you talk a little bit about new therapies in your span in the ICU, important new therapies that have come about, and which of those therapies came about because of a randomized clinical trial, and which of those important therapies came about by just somebody having an idea and, and trying that, that therapy? Yeah, well, there's, uh, there's, there are great stories that are, are related to new drugs and new therapies uh, in the intensive care unit, especially in the cardiac ICU. Uh, and the stories revolve around using drugs that are uh, novel or just becoming approved, or most commonly what we have to do in pediatrics is take a drugs, drugs that have been developed and studied in adults and then try as best we can to apply them appropriately uh, to children. Uh, so... Um, and I think we've made good progress there in that we are doing more studies on drugs that we're actually already using because they're FDA approved, even though not for children. Uh, and the FDA has had changes in their regulations that have uh, 
uh, really forced uh, industry to be more cognizant of the needs of children and to get those studies done. So there has been good progress. We use fewer off-label drugs today than we did in the previous era. But as I think back about it, there were opportunities to, uh, to do investigations early on that we took advantage of, and there were some hindrances too. But one of the things that was so uh, different uh, 20 years ago or more when we were doing clinical investigations is uh, the relative simplicity of getting a, a, a project through the IRB. Now that's not to say that the regulatory processes of the IRB today are not uh, needed. They are, they are indeed very valuable. Uh, but a consent form for inhaled nitric oxide, which uh, I used as an investigational drug uh, early on, uh, even before the FDA uh, told me I needed an IND. When I called the FDA, I'm going to digress here, but when I called the FDA about using this drug, inhaled nitric oxide, they told me that this was a gas, this wasn't a drug, and it was not in their jurisdiction, and that I did not need an IND. So when I first began using inhaled nitric oxide, uh, it was a novel therapy, of course, uh, back in 1991, uh, and we used a gas, we were able to obtain the gas because uh, it was a calibration gas for machines that were in factories measuring uh, the level of uh, pollutants in the air in factories. Uh, so it was a calibration gas, and we applied that to the use of children. At first, as I mentioned, the Food and Drug Administration said, no, I don't need an IND. And then about a month later, they called me back and said, well, actually, uh, you do. And so. Uh, there was this investigator IND-initiated studies that began using inhaled nitric oxide. But I just wanted to point out that at the time uh, when we saw a marked reduction in the pulmonary artery pressure by using inhaled nitric oxide in patients, and we had more patients than who had pulmonary hypertension, uh, it was relatively easy to say with confidence to parents that this was a drug or an intervention that was selective uh, for the pulmonary circulation. Uh, and as we had more experience, we gained more confidence in its safety, and we could uh, talk to parents uh, about getting consent to use it. And out of the first 640 patients or so that I gave inhaled nitric oxide to uh, in the 1990s, I only had one patient decline what was at the time a two-page consent form. Uh, now the consent forms are uh, 10 or 12 pages long, uh, and some of the complexities, and I would argue some of the transparencies with parents are, are, are different and better. Uh, but uh, it, we were able in, in, at that time to introduce therapies in a different way. The other therapy that I uh, was very much involved in as an extension of the same science was uh, uh, sildenafil. Uh, as you know, uh, Viagra was about to become approved for use in adults, albeit those with uh, erectile dysfunction. But we knew enough about the science uh, to suggest to us that uh, sildenafil might have a role to play in pulmonary hypertension, especially in what we were beginning to see as a withdrawal effect when we took away abruptly the inhaled nitric oxide. So I, I very clearly remember uh, the first patient. We had a, this approved by the, uh, by the IRB. I couldn't use sildenafil with inhaled nitric oxide until sildenafil was approved for use in adults because inhaled nitric oxide was not approved for use. Mm -hmm. And uh, the FDA rightly said that you can't use two 
unapproved drugs in the same patient at the same time. And so using inhaled nitric oxide and seeing the withdrawal effect, we waited until sildenafil was approved for use in adults for erectile dysfunction. And then we, at the first very young patient, uh, I think about a six-week-old patient who had recurrent pulmonary vein stenosis and rebound pulmonary hypertension after withdrawal of nitric oxide. That's right. You remember where that yeah. was. Yep. And so, and I'd worked this out with the IRB. I wrote uh, a prescription out to uh, Andy Atz, who who was working closely with me in the time as a junior attending in the ICU, and ask him to go down and get himself a prescription filled for Viagra uh, down in the pharmacy, which is on the first floor, a commercial pharmacy. Now, I don't know that he actually had to get it filled from that pharmacy because our pharmacy, uh, the hospital pharmacy, was able to crush up a tablet and we put it down the NG tube of the child and showed that we could markedly blunt the withdrawal response from inhaled nitric oxide. But those were interesting days when uh, we had folks uh, uh, doing uh, uh, novel things, I'd say, to, uh, to introduce new therapies into, ch into children. So the process is uh, more sophisticated today, and there are a lot of new drugs being used, uh, and the processes are uh, more complicated, uh, and I think that provides uh, safety, but it also sometimes provides barrier to bringing new ideas to children, and that's one of been one of our, our main uh, of areas of focus in pediatrics is that we're trying to get a focus on innovation for pediatrics, whether it's devices mm -hmm. or drugs. Uh, we really want to focus on the needs of pediatrics, and we're really building up uh, an innovation campus uh, in Washington, D.C. that's focused on uh, new companies, incubator companies, uh, and a whole collaboration with both industry and universities to have a campus that's solely focused on innovation for children, whether it's a device or a drug. Yeah, it is interesting if you think back in the history of congenital heart disease, the big, huge step forwards have all been somebody just tried something new. That's right. And as you know, there's a lot of discussion now about when we try new surgical techniques, yeah. should we be, uh, be uh, having that go through a proper IRB protocol? and. It's always a little bit hard to know where innovation uh, starts and new therapies start and what should uh, be governed by the IRB process, but I think it's important for us to all uh, look at ourselves, have conversations and consensus. A peer review process is so important, and uh, when appropriate, the IRB should definitely be involved as we create these new ideas and uh, try to apply them to the bedside. So. It's good to have controls in our system, very important. Uh, and uh, at the same time, we want a, a culture in our institutions that really promotes the notion of innovation, new ideas, and the application to the needs of the uh, pediatric world. Mm -hmm. uh, let me switch gears. Uh, just one last question I wanted to talk to you about, and that's um, your perception on work-life balance. And if you could uh, twist into that, the two sort of work strategies we have of 24-7 in-house uh, coverage, which I think leads to a lot more uh, sort of a shift work um, mentality versus sort of an older model um, where there was a little bit more continuity in care, but possibly a little bit harder um, work schedule. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a, a difficult area that we 
we must deal with now. There's this conflict between working 24-7 day after day and providing a, an extraordinary amount of continuity of care uh, versus uh, trying to arrange a schedule that's more sustainable and more consistent with uh, a, a, a lifetime of, of that profession. Um, I, I have moved a few years ago, I did move philosophically to thinking that in the larger uh, cardiac intensive care units that have complex children, especially a lot of premature newborn complex uh, children, that it, there is value in having an attending physician uh, stay in-house along with uh, fellows. Um, I know that's still controversial. I'm not, I'm not saying that's uh, what every organization uh, should adopt as a model. Uh, but for us and for many centers, that is the case. And as we develop that model, then we have to say, how do we arrange the schedules to make this uh, sustainable for our, uh, for our physicians and, and for other professionals in the field? So I, I think there have been ways that we've tried to adapt to it. We try to maintain continu continuity throughout the week and then uh, have other folks that cover. It's nice to minimize the number of changeovers that mm -hmm. occur during that week and, and, and focus on the importance of continuity of care. And then there are other ways that we can provide mutual communication about what's going on with patients. And we have to be very diligent about how we communicate and handle the the handoffs of, of patient care. Uh, but I, uh, I take seriously the issue of burnout and uh, what we've tried as an institution in Washington do is pay a lot of attention to that with our uh, advanced practice nurses and our, our physicians. Uh, and we're spending a, a lot more time with uh, topics of wellness um, and trying to make our work more efficient. You see, uh, it's, for me, it's, uh, it's a little more or a little different, let's say, than a balance between work and life. What I want to see us do is emphasize the ways that our work life can be more efficient so that we'll be more satisfied with the work that we're doing and the time that we're doing it. If we can see our patients and see them efficiently on rounds, uh, get the work done and communicate the information that we need to parents and the other caretakers and do that more efficiently, and if we can get our notes written and get ourselves away from the computer and the notes done in a way that satisfies our clinical documentation improvement people and the billing aspects and the regulatory aspects, which has really, I think, detracted a lot from our ability to connect to the patient and be satisfied and gratified with the care that we offer. If we become more efficient in that daytime work so that people aren't going home and saying and worrying about their patients still, haven't written the note yet, trying to get to the note and bring that work home with them, that's where the balance gets uh, out of play. And what I'd like to have us do is to work on the systems in the hospital that can make us more mm -hmm. efficient in delivering that care. There's been a lot of progress uh, made, at least philosophically, in trying to change the nature of the electronic medical record and the notes and the regulatory requirements. Just as a reminder, a year or two ago, uh, you couldn't use any part of a medical student note that was incorporated into your note. And now uh, CMS and others have said, no, as long as certain safeguards are put into place, one can use what's already in the medical record to incorporate into the note. I think as we go forward, whether it's a, 
a video of the attending physician uh, talking about what's going to go into that note, or another way to structure the note that goes into the chart, I think that will be more uh, efficient for us and will uh, help us with the, the work-life balance issue. One of the great innovations I just uh, read about recently is that there's a lot of work being done now with the ability for technology to listen to the conversation between physician and patient and then to construct a note from the uh, content of that conversation in a very structured way. Uh, so I think those are the kinds of advances in technology that will help us be more efficient uh, with the electronic medical record, which I do think is a part, not all, but a part of what is exacerbating the uh, physician wellness issues today. I agree. Well, thank you very much, David. This has been excellent. Um, and we'll be uh, signing off on this podcast. Thank you, Sarah. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to look for other episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher or subscribe to get all the latest episodes as they're released. Once again, find out more at our website, pcics.org. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution.